This is one-on-one's NHL podcast, where we take on the five hottest issues in hockey with three of our NHL beat reporters. It's time to go five on three. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is five on three WFUV's NHL podcast. I am joined by Jack Caldwell is back and Nick Lehman is back on the board, no less. Yeah, first time back here for one of the podcasts. Yeah, that's it's it's, it's exciting, right? Thrilling, enthralling. <laughs> so, guys, there is a lot to get to this week, and I want to start with the New Jersey Devils. Um, not great, not great, Bob. Tough as uh, from Mad Men is what I can say right now. Um, things have not gone well since last we did this show. Um, it started with the first game of their road trip in Tampa Bay when they just get absolutely embarrassed 8-3 to three, uh, by the Lightning, and then things just got worse. 4-3 loss to Detroit, 3-0 shutout against the Islanders. They had a pretty good win against Pittsburgh, and it looked like things were finally turning around, but then they come back and just get obliterated by Ottawa. So, something that has been popping up in John Hines' post-game press conferences is that he doesn't know where the team's compete level has gone. And that's kind of something that I saw. And it started with Pavel Zaka finally getting sent down to Binghamton to get some work in because he has just been absolutely awful this year. And it was something I wanted to mention last week, but we didn't have time. But they're finally taking care of that. Corey Schneider's back. He has not looked good. They gave him two cupcake games against Detroit and against Ottawa, and he got blown out in all of them. So, Jack, I'll go to you first. What has happened to these Devils in this past two, three weeks? Well, first, obviously, you get Schneider coming back from an injury. And last week, we talked about giving him the entire month of November to get his feet wet, to get back into a groove. And you really can't allow him to do that the way he's been playing. I don't think anybody expected him to give, be giving up seven, eight goals a game when we were saying that. Um, in addition to that, I think it's interesting that Hines was saying that the team's compete level has vanished. Because to me, that's almost a reflection of him. From the games I've been watching, I've seen, I think, at least twice, if not more, the Devils go up by two goals early in the game, and then they've just completely choked it away. And it seems like their strategy and their effort level and the way they've been going about things has, has not been changing period by period. They've been coming out with the same strategy each period there's no adjustments being made in the intermissions so that's not only a reflection of Heinz not making the proper adjustments but it's also a reflection of the captains of Andy Green where's he been I thought he was a really good captain and that's a very poor reflection of his leadership yeah and you mentioned John Heinz and it's being a reflection on him and he's not the type of guy that lets these things go unnoticed and when he calls you out I mean, we talked about him doing the marathon practice um, where they just did laps, drills, and they they barely did line combinations and anything like that. And he just seems frustrated with the team right now. I mean, outside of the first line, they're getting little to no production, point production, that is. Um, I mean, Palmieri, 17 points, Hall, 15 points, Heashier, 12 points. Can't ask for much more than that. But then you go and you see Travis Zajac at 10 points. Damon Severson's kind of having a bounce-back season with 8 points so far. 
Brian Boyle recorded his first NHL hat trick the other day. That was pretty great. But then things just drop off, and there's almost no secondary scoring on this team. So, Nick, what do they need to do to get back on track? Well, one thing's for sure. They are very slowly well, and steadily becoming a one-line team. We're seeing that night in, night out. I, I was covering the uh, the Islanders game where they lost 3 nothing, and it was just all the first line. It was no one else was giving any sort of help or production. I, I say that was like one of the most boring games of the year to watch because there were no chances other than the first line. I think Taylor Hall had a breakaway and uh, some other first-line chances. Other than that, there was literally no scoring opportunities. And we mentioned the fact, you know, like a game against the Senators the day after, you know, news breaks that, you know, five different players are trash-talking the team in an Uber. You'd think that would be the easiest game in the world, one of the worst teams in the league, and chaos going on. No, not only did you have a two-goal lead, you blew it and lost 7-3. I I don't know what happens to this team. I'm starting to think about coaches, head coaches, because as much as I have come to like respect John Hines, especially we saw so much in the behind the glass series, his coaching and how much the players respect him. I'm very surprised, you know, it looked like they had the bounce back against Pittsburgh and then they just go and embarrass themselves for the second time in two weeks. Is this a coaching issue or is it a personnel issue? Do they just not have enough top-tier talent? Well, I was thinking that too. I blame Hines for not making the proper adjustments between periods. Right. But you also have to talk about, again, the captaincy. This is where those players-only meetings come together when you have that disparity in statistics. But you can't tell me this roster isn't talented enough. You have the reigning Hart Trophy winner. It was a team that was... For a good part of last year, one of the better teams in the league obviously made the playoffs. The evidence is there that this is not a talentless team. This is a team that, by all accounts and measures, should be a playoff team. So some of that goes against Hines, but also talk about the captains and just the players in general. They've got to step it up. That's on the coach, the captains, and just pretty much everyone. It's top to bottom. So things aren't getting much easier for the Devils in these upcoming weeks um, at Toronto, at Winnipeg to finish up their home, their road trip, and then they come back home to play Pittsburgh, back on the road against Philly, Detroit, at Carolina, Montreal, the Islanders, so on and so on. So they're definitely going to need to step it up, but I want to get to a more positive note about the Devils because we have the Hockey Hall of Fame inductions coming up, and of course... Martin Brodeur is joining the Hall of Fame as a member of the New Jersey Devils. Um, To me, he is the greatest goaltender of all time. I know people argue Patrick Waugh, some people argue Dominic Hasek and other things like that. But I think, just straight up, Marty Brodeur is without a doubt the the best goalie ever. Um, I think he's probably the greatest devil of all time. I'm sure that, that I think everyone can agree. Yeah, with. I, no I, doubt. I'm, I'm sure there are some arguments people will make for Scott Stevens, who holds a special place in my heart, and a lot of people will say Patrick Elias or Scott Niedermeyer and things like that. Even Mr. Devil Candanico. But I want to get your guys' thoughts. Um, what are your lasting memories or impressions of what Marty Brodeur went meant to not only the Devils but to hockey as a whole? Nick, what 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 do you get out of it? For me, growing up, watching him with the the cup runs that they had, 
you know, even most recently in 2012, you could say he was he was the rallying cry around that team. You know, Marty's last run, and you know, just just to see. I mean, it, talking about the greatest devil of all time, I don't think there's a comparison because you don't hear Ken Danical in in the talk for greatest defenseman of all time or Scott Stevens. You hear Marty Brodeur in talk for greatest goaltender of all time. I don't think there's any uh, you can make any argument for that. But I mean, really, just the what he's meant to the 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 whole organization throughout the years, watching him grow up, and then you know as a veteran, really continuing to excel even into his later years. Yeah, to me, again, that 2012 Eastern Conference Finals, Rangers Devils, he broke my 12 year old heart. <laughs> aside from that, the thing that I found most cool about that was the fact that he was the starting goaltender on the 1994 Devils who played the Rangers in the Eastern Conference Finals, that Mato 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 Game 7 series. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he is that one link to the early days of the Devils' rise and lasted all the way through those several great years, all those Stanley Cup runs, he is pretty much the bridge between new and old. He came in in an era where there really weren't many butterfly-style goaltenders, and he left when goaltending had been completely flipped over his head. So the fact that he was so good for so long, I think as much as I dislike him as a Rangers fan, I have nothing but respect for him. I think that a large part of his game was his his puck handling. How many other players have the league had to change the way the, the ice acts mm-hmm. simply because a, a goaltender was so good at handling the puck. Exactly, the trapezoid. He was so good that the league literally had to make a rule to stop him from excelling at puck handling. I saw a clip of a TSN interview that's going on tonight in Canada that saying that uh, his father was a photographer in Montreal for many years, and he talked to Marty early on about how Ron Hextall was basically another defenseman. And that's what was his in, his inspiration to become one of the greatest puck handling goaltenders and he mastered it so well that he really did become a third defenseman. He he scored 3 goals I think in in his whole career, 3 Yeah, two or three? Uh, I know he at least had one in the playoffs and he probably had a couple I think he in the had at season. least two. Yeah. One regular season, yeah. one playoffs. But that just shows you the incredible you know, puck handling skills that he, that he had and revolutionized the, the position. Exactly. Say what you want about him having some of the best defensive cores of all time in front of him, and that was surely a factor in some of his success. But the fact that he could take over a game, not just in his crease, but the entire movement and pace of a game, I've never seen a goaltender like that, and we never will since the trapezoid has been implemented. Yeah, so congratulations to Mario Brodeur, absolutely my favorite devil of all time. A lot of great memories of him playing for this team, and the city, the team cannot thank him enough. Not even just the city, the state of New Jersey cannot thank him enough for what he gave to this team. Um, so moving on, let's get into the Rangers. Um, a little bit better as of late, since excuse me, at least the last time that we did this show. Um, picked up a good win in the shootout against Anaheim. Winning against Buffalo, winning against Montreal, and then their last game in October was that shootout. Was a shootout win against the Sharks. Um, what have we seen from them recently? I know that the the big theme on this show, at least for them this season, was staying competitive. And they're not only staying competitive; they're they're winning games, and they're not only are they competitive, they're in a hunt. 
I need my fellow Rangers fans to cool their jets a little bit. <laughs> we need to put this in perspective. This is not a team that's going to make a deep run at the playoffs. It's a cup contender. I've seen too many of those kinds of tweets and Instagram posts. But to put it into perspective, you're getting as much as you could possibly ask for in a sense of the team building chemistry building character um their wins on the west coast against the sharks and the ducks both in overtime shootouts that to me is a really special win because you're talking about the extra time on the ice it's an ex you have to put in that extra effort to come away with a victory and those are the kind of situations on the road 3,000 miles away from home where you can build the chemistry moving forward and we know this isn't a year i mean most of us know that this isn't a year (laughs) where the team's going to win a stanley cup what you want is to lay down the foundation for the years in the future where you could win a Stanley Cup. And you do that by building your character and chemistry now, and that's what they're doing. Are we getting into a territory where they might trick themselves into thinking that they're a good team and they might not sell before it's too late? I don't think so. We saw last year they sold and they did it well. I don't think they're going to deviate from that plan. They would be very silly to deviate from that plan. Uh, There's still multiple assets that they can trade away for the future that can really put them in great, great position going into the future. I think they would be very foolish to do that. I mean, remember, the West Coast wins were good, but they also then beat Buffalo and Montreal, who nobody's looking at as really being contenders either. So you do have to put that into perspective. I think they're going to try to market this Madison Square Garden as a team that has the potential to be successful. But when it comes down to it, I do think Jeff Gorton's a really smart guy, and I don't think he's going to be fooled by this. So looking ahead, it's it's weird for the Rangers. They have two games on the road at Detroit, at Columbus, back home for Vancouver, at the Islanders versus the Panthers that's starting a three-game homestand against those Panthers, Dallas, and the Islanders. So their month upcoming is decent at best. Um, I know that Rangers fans want them to lose, 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 but I think, say they get eight, nine points out of those games, it's a success. Yeah, you're looking for the moral victories. If you can beat the Islanders one out of those two times, you can get a win maybe on the road at Philadelphia on a Black Friday nationally televised game. Those are the kind of things that you're looking at as being those moral victories that can really shape the team and their character. If they lose to Washington at home, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. If you lose to a Vancouver even, it's not a big deal. But I'm looking at some of those rivalry games against teams that, you might have to compete against in the playoffs, not this year, but next year or following years. Those are the games that I'm looking at, especially the ones where you have a bit of that bigger spotlight on you, such as the Islanders and Flyers. So let's let's move to those crosstown rivals, the New York Islanders, who suddenly find themselves atop the Metro. Did anyone see that coming? Just just to start? No? No? no. N- not only no. me? Great. I didn't hear any of those predictions on this podcast. Fantastic. So, it all started with a big win against Pittsburgh, and not only that, it was back-to-back wins against Pittsburgh, that shutout win against the Devils. Uh, they lost in the shootout to Montreal in their most recent game, and they have Tampa Bay tonight. That's pucks drops in, like, two, two-ish hours, so they'll be looking to at least get some kind of result there. But, Nick, I'll ask you first, where has this come from, and is it sustainable? I don't think it's sustainable. We saw this exact same 
situation play out last year. Uh, they the one difference is they have a new GM and a new head coach. Let's see if that makes any difference. I know after uh, Monday's game, Barry Trotz was not happy with the team the way they lost and was really, really frustrated. So it'll be interesting to see how they come out against a very difficult Tampa team tonight. Probably not necessarily expecting a win, but at least more fight because, uh, you know, Montreal not necessarily expected to do much out of the East. So... I at least watching the Islanders the other night uh, last Saturday when I was covering the Devils they they look they look pretty pretty solid. I mean, it it seems like the defensive end of the game has stepped it up, which was a huge issue last year, which it seems like may or you know may not have you know been resolved somewhat with some of the acquisitions they got. So and I think that's definitely in part to Lou Lamorello and Barry Trotz. We see how great of a coach he is. He is one of the few coaches that have ever changed Alex Ovechkin to be more of a leader instead of an individual player. So we know how good he is as a coach. So I think time will tell, but I think the collapse is coming as it did last year. But very interested to see where the next month goes. I mean, exactly. You have basically the same roster as last year, minus John Tavares. You have a couple of role players to fill his shoes, but... There's no way that on paper this team is better than last season. I think the Barry Trotz effect could help them, say, into the new year. But once it really comes down to it, there's nothing about this team that gets me really excited about them being a legitimate playoff contender. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at it, they're not getting a lot of secondary scoring. Again, it, it sounds like we're talking about the Devils again. Their first line is fantastic. <laughs> the the line of Josh Bailey, Anders Lee, Matt Barzell. Josh Bailey, 15 points. Lee, 13 points. Barzell, 12 points. Can't, can't ask for anything more out of them. But you're getting goal scoring out of Brock Nelson, out of Casey Zizekas, and Valtteri Filpula. Great. But then Jordan Eberle's not really doing anything. Andrew Ladd is kind of doing what Andrew Ladd's done since he's gotten there. Um, again, it goes back to our conversation last week. There are guys on this team that probably shouldn't be on this team, and there are guys down in Bridgeport that probably should be on this team. Cough, cough, Josh Hosang, <laughs> ringing that bell for the second week in a row. But I'm, I think I'm with you, Nick. I think this, I think the collapse is coming. I know uh, I was talking to Jackson earlier, and he was saying they have the lowest expected goals for in the NHL. So. It's obviously not sustainable, but who knows? We might be wrong. I think we were at this time last year we were saying the same thing about the Devils, that mm-hmm. them being at the top of the Metro would not last, and they were going to bottom out as they were expected to do and finish as one of the worst teams in the NHL. But as we saw, they stayed at the top of the Metro for a good long time and ended up making the playoffs. So we might be wrong about the Islanders. They might be able to keep it up. But that difference is that the Devils had Taylor Hall, the Hart Trophy winner, carrying them. Do the Islanders have that guy? Right now, he is yet to reveal himself. All right, so that probably does it for our locals this week. And now it is time to get into the most recent coaching moves in the NHL. Um, We have seen the end of an era in Chicago. Uh John, uh, not John, Joe Quenville, right? Yeah. Joel. Joel, Joel there Joel it is. I, it was one of them. I was thinking of John Quenville, who plays for the Devils. That is, mm-hmm. It happens. Joel Quenville, officially fired by the Blackhawks, uh, was at the helm for one of the most recent 
dynasties in hockey, leading the Blackhawks to what three, four cups under his tenure? Three, three. cups in six years. Three cups in six years. That can't really do any better than that. And the teams that he led were just dominant. I mean, you had the defensive pairings of Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook. You had the rise of Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane under him. Corey Crawford looked like a Vesna-caliber goaltender during those cup runs. And it's a shame because Father Time finally caught up with the Blackhawks, and we've seen the regression of a Brent Seabrook, of a Duncan Keith, of a Corey Crawford, and Jonathan Tate and Patrick Hain are still two of the best players in hockey that we have. But it was bound to happen. They they were strapped for cash. Their their salary cap is ridiculous with the contracts that they have paid Taves, Kane, Keith, all those guys, the main core, just to keep this team together. Should they... I guess this is like a, a two-fold question. Should they have probably realized where the team was going a little earlier and maybe not even made a coaching move, but maybe sold off some pieces to kind of set themselves up for the future better? I remember last year we were talking about the Brandon Saad trade, bringing him back. And the first time you you sent him away, didn't really get much back. And then you make a one-for-one trade of bringing him back and letting go of Artemi Panarin, who has shown that he is the superior player. That just seems like a a mistake. It It doesn't even seem like a mistake. It is an absolute blunder by this front office where they have received a superior, um, a not superior player, and they just don't seem set up very well for the future. I would say let's compare the Rangers and the Blackhawks right now. The Rangers are not afraid to trade away, you know, different pieces of the team that meant a lot to the city and a lot to the organization. The Blackhawks right now, granted, they actually did win three cups in six years, so they were successful. But they're in this period where it's like they're almost sentimental about, oh, but we have to let, you know, let's just say Jonathan Tays walk to bring, you know, bring in prospects for the future, and they don't want to do that. And I think it's going to hurt them long term. I mean, you just mentioned the Artemi Panarin trade. That He is, was one of my... He's one of my favorite players to watch. I I think he's incredible, and I really am... Chicago lost big there. I do not know why they traded him for an older Brandon Saad. Obviously not the same Brandon Saad they had when they went on their cup runs. So I I think overall, like you, as I mentioned, comparing the two franchises, Chicago's in a lot worse place than the Rangers. The Rangers are rebuilding right, and Chicago's just kind of hanging around, but eventually they're going to be falling bad. I mean, I felt like it was totally disrespectful to fire him so unceremoniously mm-hmm. at this point in the season when I think it was obvious that this is how the season was supposed to go. You're talking about a guy who's your greatest coach in your franchise's history. In terms of all of hockey, you could make an argument that he's the second greatest coach of all time behind Scotty Bowman. Um, and that's saying something, considering Chicago was one of the original six teams exactly. and, mm-hmm. and they have a very long and storied history. Not only is he one of the greatest coaches of all time, but he's an amazing guy. I actually met him when I was about 13 years old. He came to a fan event two hours before a Blackhawks game, unannounced without any pay incentive, and signed all the hockey fans, including mine, uh, hockey pucks, jerseys, whatever they wanted. So I talked to him for a little bit when I was a a bit younger, and he (laughs) Mm -hmm. was extremely nice and courteous. And for him to take that time right before a game is unheard of. So you fired one of your best franchise representatives that you could ask for when you could have 
rebuilt with him, and what a better guy to ask to rebuild with than one of the greatest coaches of all time. They fired the wrong guy. Stan Bowman, their general manager, he's the one who signed Brett Seabrook to a ridiculous contract. He's the one who decided to hang on to this core for too long rather than rebuilding. Um, I blame the Blackhawks' ownership for this. I really feel like they made the wrong move and fired the wrong guy in probably the worst way possible, which is pretty surprising coming from a classy original six franchise. Yeah, I'm totally with you. They they handled this so poorly. I mean, they were one of the worst teams in hockey last year. If they were going to let Joel Quenville go, it should have been at the end of last year. Absolutely. It sh- they should have, I don't know, before their last... Announce it before the last home game. Say, yep. say, look, we're we're it's going to be a mutual parting of ways. We no longer think that he's the right man for the job. He thinks that he can go coach somewhere else. That's fine. Let it be a mutual thing. No bad blood between the the team, the coach, the fans, and let the fans send him off the proper way. That's the way it should have been done, and it is a it's an absolute shame that it did not go down that way. But. Let's go to the the new man behind the bench, Jeremy Colleton, now the youngest head coach in the NHL, taking that title over from John Hines of the Devils. Um, what do we think that that this guy can bring to the to the squad? What can he do to move this franchise into the next generation? Well, I just thought it was an interesting move because not only did they fire Quenneville, but they fired his two top assistant coaches, Ulf Samuelson and Kevin Deneen. So. Colton has been with the Blackhawks for a little bit, but he really, I don't know, I feel like I'm a big fan of interim head coaches, assistant head coaches stepping up to fill that role, and then you can choose to make them an assistant head coach when you find a new guy. I think trying to put Colton in this position at, at this age, considering that there were two guys who were more knowledgeable about the clubhouse, I feel like the Blackhawks just really handled this poorly. I wish Colleton the best of luck. I saw that Quenneville actually texted him and felt like he was a good guy to bring in for the job. But I just feel like you have Ulf Samuelson and Kevin Deneen, two longtime assistant coaches of that Blackhawks franchise. Samuelson was also a longtime Rangers assistant coach. You had experienced guys who I'm sure would have been comfortable coming in and being an interim head coach, and you just blew them off. Do you think that's a... A thing of just wanting to clear house and get rid of the old regime? Yes, but I just don't understand why. It wasn't their fault. It was Stan Bowman's fault. Okay, so he wasn't the only one fired. Um, John Stevens of the Kings was let go, and uh, Willie Desjardins took over, and I don't really want to get into all that because, you know, Ilya Kovalchuk, but whatever. <laughs> uh, the Kings are not a good team now. They do not look set up to be a good team in the future. Jonathan Quick's hurt for a long time, as has been his case for the last couple of years. Uh, they're a mess, and they're not really worth talking about right now. And I want to actually get into something that Nick brought up earlier, talking about the Ottawa Senators. Uh, we all have seen the video by now, and if you haven't, please look it up, because it is the most ridiculous thing I've seen in a while, and I, and being in New York, you see a lot of weird things in the media, but a a group of players led by Matt Duchesne were in an Uber the other day, and first off, without them knowing, were being recorded by their driver, and... They uh, they they were talking about uh, about the direction of the team. So, and it was not positive. 
So let's get into that. What first off, let's dive into what they said and what it means for the team. I mean, it felt like an episode of The Office watching this. Like it was funny, <laughs> but in a sort of cringy way, and it just makes you uncomfortable. To me, they were more or less venting about their coaches and their practices. They were upset about being quizzed about certain plays. They they said something about this is practice, it's not school. Um, to me, the key difference in this, though, is I was told once by a very wise man that there's a difference between venting and whining. And this, to me, sounded like venting, not whining. I think any living person ever who's worked for anyone or done work for someone has vented about their boss. And you can say the same about anyone who's been a boss of employees. They've vented about their employees as well. I bet you that every player in the National Hockey League has vented about their coach and every coach has vented about their players. So I don't have as much of a problem with the with the players venting. It's incredibly embarrassing for them. Um, I'm more upset with the Uber driver filming them and, and leaking that. But I am disappointed, actually, in the players that they did not tip the Uber driver. That's yeah. what led him to mm-hmm. do this. Now, not tipping your driver should not mean getting this leaked. However, you make millions of dollars a year. You are celebrities. You cannot afford to just let this let this slide on an Uber bill. You can easily afford to tip, and there's no excuse not to. So I did lose a little respect for them in that regard. Uh, my quick last word is, uh, I mean, what a mess. As as if the Ottawa Senators do not have enough bad PR, it's like the pitch man coming out towards the end of a commercial. Wait, there's more. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it seems like it's always something with this organization who hasn't had the worst start. We were expecting them to be absolute bottom of the league. They haven't had the worst start, but still, I mean, again, like a year and a half ago, they were one goal away from the Stanley Cup final, and now it's just... Embarrassment after embarrassment. Yeah, and you talk about them not being as bad as they could as they could have been and probably should have been. And I think I contribute a lot of that success to Thomas Shabbat really stepping up and filling that role that Eric Carlson left. But now that this video is out there, how did not only the players come back, but how does the team come back? Because Jack, to your point, it might just be venting, but you don't want things like that getting out into the public because it just does not make a good look for your team. And I, I've i seen things smaller than this tear teams apart. What is What impact is this going to have on the rest of this season, if at all? I mean, look, it's natural to vent. We all vent, just like I said, but you vent to people you trust and you trust that that's not going to get to the person or thing you're venting about. So the fact that it did not only get to that person, but it got to the basically the entire world. Anybody who wants to see this video and see what they said knows it. I can't see how this team can stay together, the clubhouse, the coaching staff. That just creates an incredibly awkward situation. Not only that, but now the coaches are going to be questioning their own methods. They're going to be questioning every player's thoughts on them, and then vice versa. It just creates a sort of toxic environment that you really don't want to have on any team. And they had a bad situation last year with the Mike Hoffman and uh, his wife with everything going on in that locker room. I mean, it, it's like the Ottawa Senators just can't catch a break. No matter what they do, 
it's just always bad PR, bad press, and once again, here we are talking negatively about Ottawa. Yeah, it just seems like this team can't get out of their own way. You you get rid of your your franchise player, your captain for scraps, for scraps. Uh, the whole Mike Hoffman thing. The management doesn't seem to know what they're doing. Ownership doesn't seem to know what they're doing. But they might be able to figure it out. I don't see it happening anytime soon. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this week. I want to thank Jack Caldwell, Nick Lehman doing a great job on the board. I'm Matt Costantini. Come back next week, everyone.